looking to create wealth in commercial property but don't know how to do it, tired of negative gearing and not getting ahead, well, you're in the right place. You're listening to the Revolve Commercial Podcast. Welcome to the Revolve Commercial Podcast. My name is Andrew Bean and I'm here with founder of Revolve Commercial, Mish Daniel. How are you doing? Awesome, Andrew. Thank you very much for hosting the podcast and having me back on again. No worries. Thank you very much for having me host it. So who do we have today, Mish? Today we've got Mike Mortlock, who is, I'm going to say, the knower of everything when it comes to tax depreciation and most definitely action-packed, jam-packed podcast filled with saving you lots of money at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, if you're an investor and you don't know what a depreciation schedule is, then this is going to be really, really informative for you. Like we go through so many things, how legislation has changed, what a depreciation schedule is, when you should get it, how much it costs, just a complete overview of what a depreciation schedule is and what different types of assets actually have higher depreciation than others. And we even talk about when or why you should use a depreciation schedule. The tip is probably uh, don't put in your numbers, Hamish. Absolutely. And I think the very important message pick up from this is doesn't matter what type of property you have. If it's an investment property, and I'm going to include residential over here, residential, commercial, even if it's an empty warehouse, there is still depreciation to be had no matter what asset you have. That's it. So we also have a free giveaway as well, a tax depreciation checklist, which you can at the end, we'll tell you where you can go and get that and make sure you listen all the way through so you can download that checklist. Very exciting. I'm not going to tell you right now. Listen out right through until the end. Oh, and Mikey also had a free kind of bonus for anyone that comes to him through the podcast. So if you want to give him a call, actually, sorry, Wait till the end and he'll tell you where you can have a little bit of a saving if you go and talk to him about doing an appreciation schedule. So, Mish, without any further ado, let's bring him in. Can't find any good deals? Revolve Commercial has you covered with the hottest commercial property picks every month delivered free straight to your inbox. Subscribe today at www.revolvecommercial.com.au. Sit back, save time, and have the deals delivered directly to you from Revolve Commercial. Welcome to the show, Mike. How you doing, mate? I'm doing fabulously. Thank you very much for having me. All right, mate. So for the listeners who don't know the colorful character that is Mike Mortlock, can you just give us a quick recap of your background? So I'm a quantity surveyor. I have a Bachelor of Construction Management and I specialize in the tax depreciation space. So both residential, commercial, industrial, anything that depreciates, normally sort of messing about. It's a weird job to have, but for some reason I enjoy it. So I'll do it for a little bit longer yet. Awesome. Awesome. So mate, being that you are the tax depreciation man, Can you just explain what happened in legislation back in 2017 that changed depreciation schedules forever? Yeah, I think the good news for commercial property investors is that it didn't really change anything except make commercial property more beneficial for investors. So what happened on the 9th of May at 7.30 specifically in 2017 (laughs) is that our recently dumped prime minister was then the treasurer he got up and did the budget speech and he announced that anyone that was purchasing a residential property from that date onward, so the 9th of May 2017, would no longer be able to claim plant and equipment items unless they're either buying a brand new property or putting the items in themselves. And plant and equipment is really the loose assets, so things like carpets and blinds and kitchen appliances, and they have much higher rates of depreciation than the building structure. So That was a pretty big change to the residential tax landscape for investors. And why do you think they actually made that change? How did it benefit? Well, revenue springs to mind. Treasury did sort of cite a few weird nuances where there were assets that could be written off at 100%, like ceiling fans, for example, and then the property could be sold two years later And the tax office really said you didn't need to chase down the affairs of the previous owner. So you could have a $290 ceiling fan 
claimed at $290 and then resold two years later with the residual value of maybe 260 and then that's written off and suddenly we do that three or four times and it kind of doesn't make sense that we've written off, say, six or $700 for a $290 asset. So there are a few kind of nuances there. I think some quantity surveyors maybe were pushing the boundaries a little bit, but I think it's going to really be a revenue thing, just trying to claw back a little bit of that tax revenue by pinching it from the property investors in the residential space. So how did this change in legislation affect your workload in 2017? Yeah, so what actually happened that night is I raced into the office as soon as the announcement happened. There was no warning to quantity surveyors or our institute. So I was in the middle of analysing a thousand residential transactions for a completely different reason. But I realised at that point in time, it was most likely that I had the best access to immediate data to model the impact. So what actually happened is we found that 38.2% of residential transactions were on brand new properties. So in some respects, well, the change wouldn't make any impact. Then we looked at all the properties that were built after the cutoff date for the building structure. So those structural deductions remained, and that was 69.9% of that sample. So what we were kind of trying to figure out is how do we answer questions from investors on what impact it has on them? And also privately, do we still have a tax depreciation business, quite frankly? And when we looked at the properties that were built prior to the cutoff date for the original building structure, we found just under 64% had been renovated and the average value of that reno, so by previous owners, was just under 40 grand. So what that really sort of all boiled down to is that in 83.9% of those thousand cases, we would have recommended the depreciation schedule. And in the others, we would have said, look, there's really no value in getting a depreciation schedule done. So it did reduce the availability of depreciation deductions for residential players and cut into a big chunk of our business. That must have really hurt at the time. Yeah, Um, I mean, like it's in the moment you kind of think the world's going to end, but in hindsight, everything is okay and the sun rose the next morning. But in those moments, there's obviously a little bit of panic. Mike, can you just give us an overview on the different depreciation methods? So when it comes to the traditional uniform capital allowance methods that the ATO accepts, there's really just the diminishing value and the prime cost method. So diminishing value, as the name kind of implies, it diminishes, it drops over time. So if you think about an asset that has, say, 10% depreciation rate, and we're looking at, say, a $1,000 asset, in the first year, you'd get $100, right? But in the second year, you would get $1,000 minus $100, and then you're timesing it by 10%. Now, so what that effectively means is that the deductions are higher in the first part of the claim, and then they drop off over time. Whereas the prime cost method, another way of of talking about that is a straight line method. It has a lower rate of depreciation. So if in the diminishing value method, we were saying 10%, prime cost would normally be about 5%, but it would be 5% on that 1,000 each year. So we don't consider how much it's dropping each year. We just do that flat percentage until the value runs out. They're the main methods of depreciation that the tax office will accept. And of course, you've got a few nuances with your instant asset write-off and some simplified depreciation methods, depending on your turnover and things like that. So those would be your two main depreciation methods. Do you ever do digital method or double declining balance methods? No, we don't. Those are pretty common depreciation methods internationally, but not really accepted by the tax office. The only other real variations we do that on those would be, say, calculating or self-calculating effective lives where we're adjusting effective lives, or there might be an STS method, so just the simplified depreciation methods where there's obviously a turnover rule and then there's just two different pools. But really, if you're not sort of doing simplified depreciation for a smaller business, or doing an instant asset write-off, which normally is something that's mentioned in the budget speech each year, then it's normally going to be the diminishing or the prime cost method. Okay. What's the most popular between those two? 
we don't have data on that and we're not actually qualified to recommend one over the other. But in our report, you can see a graph which sort of shows them side by side. Residentials, obviously, diminishing value is more popular because you're getting the higher deductions up front. And if you consider the time value of money, that makes diminishing value method quite attractive for commercial investors as well. However, we certainly see amongst some of the bigger investors, the prime cost becomes more attractive for them simply because it's a much more budgetable amount each year. You can almost set your watch to it that you're going to get roughly the same amount each year and over time the assets will drop off, but it's a much more flatline method. So certainly with commercial, prime cost is more utilised than diminishing value method. And so, mate, in what situation would you use each method? Like, I know you said you can't basically give your reference or what you actually think we should use, but if you had to choose, like, what situation would you use both? Yeah, that's a great question. And we can certainly say, look, in what situation it would be more beneficial. Tax depreciation, you've got to remember, is is a deduction, right? So if you're kind of thinking that profits in the future might actually be higher than they are now, then using the diminishing value method would really kind of utilise all of those deductions up front. So if you think about, people have asked me in the resi space, why would anyone want higher deductions later on in time? Well, think about if you're, say, working at Subway and in six years' time you're going to be a qualified brain surgeon. I haven't actually seen this happen in real life. But technically, if you're earning $30,000 a year and then you move to $300,000 a year, the value of the deductions in the first couple of years are minuscule to you compared to later on in time. So that would be the best advice is just to kind of think about when you're likely to incur the bigger tax bill. And if that's later on in time, then prime costs might be more beneficial for you. Whereas if you're wanting to maximize the deductions up front, the diminishing value is always going to be better. Awesome. So from like a depreciation standpoint, what are the key differences between all the different types of commercial properties? really comes down to the number of plant and equipment assets and then different building types will have different rules, say for the cutoff date for depreciation on the original building structure. So that's where we're talking about the main value construction. So let's say we're talking about an office or a hotel. Most of the value is going to be in the concrete and the timber and the gyprock and the cabinetry. Those are all Division 43 or structural components. The remainder would be things like the carpets and the air conditioning and the lighting system. So the cutoff date for the original building structure is different in traveller accommodation as distinct from, let's say, an office or a warehouse. It's normally 1979 for things like traveller accommodation and 1982 for most other assets. So those are two key things. With manufacturing buildings, you're actually getting a 4% rate of depreciation on the structure as opposed to a 2.5% on almost every other type. And then it's just the list of plant and equipment items. So if you have a look at the tax ruling, which comes out normally in July each year, it'll be called something like TR 2011-3. This is how I spend my Friday nights. You can, you can troll through that. There's about 281 pages of plant and equipment items. And every year they'll pick on a particular category where they're wanting to, say, create effective lives for it. So things like beekeeping has popped up in the last little while that wasn't really in there before. Or they might sort of say smash repairers is a new industry and we want to look at the specific things that they have in smash repair businesses. So that's the main thing. Like if you think about agricultural things, there are plant and equipment items that are used to artificially inseminate cows, for example. You're not going to find them in dentistry, for example, or at least I hope not. (laughs) that's certainly not (laughs) so so mikey in terms of like new industries um have you seen anything pop up for crypto or the metaverse or anything kind of new like that no there's nothing that's popped up there but if you think about those businesses they're really just computer servers and it's information technology stuff right it's not kind of specific plant and equipment items as far as i know I've not yet mined any cryptocurrency myself unless there's a a new sort of type of quantum computer that they're utilizing for this that hasn't previously existed. It probably falls under similar assets. It's a good question. A good thing to think about is as different businesses and different industries pop up, this is where the Commissioner of Taxation is charged with creating these plant and equipment assets each year. 
So somebody that's doing that kind of business at the moment, I mean, the only depreciation would be the computer or unit softwares that they're using. Yeah, so computer software is a depreciable asset and the actual hardware that they're utilizing, there would be switches and routers and, of course, the computers themselves. And then Mm. if they're operating within a premises, they may have done an office fit-out. So that would be the workstations and the furniture and the reception desks if they have them. So when you think about plant and equipment for crypto as a business, there would really, I assume it would just be computer heavy. Whereas if you think about a farm, there's going to be, you know, tractors and harrows and irrigation and attachments and all sorts of bits and bobs. That kind of makes sense. What are the differences of commercial property types? Do you have any data that you can share on specific case studies? Yeah, absolutely. So if we think about, um, say, offices, they're a key uh, commercial property type. So when we think about the structural deductions, they're going to be things like the building itself. And it's not that dissimilar to any other type of building. I mean, warehouses typically are constructed in a different way to offices are. Offices tend to be more expensive to build. The construction costs can vary between $1,500 to $3,000 a square metre normally. Obviously, construction costs have been going up quite rapidly as well. But just to give you a bit of an idea, I pulled together some data. There was an office that was built for about $2.78 million. It was 1,200 square metres in size. The cost per square metre worked out to be just under $2,000 a square metre. And in the first full year of depreciation, we're talking around about $95,000 worth of deductions for something like that. And if you think about an office, I mean, really, it is just kind of of a structure, but if you think the plant and equipment items, there's going to be multifunction machines, photocopiers, shredders, desk chairs, all of the reception assets, bookcases, all those sorts of things. It just depends whether you're owning the building structure or whether you're also operating a business from within that office as to which assets you can claim. I saw in one of your reports there, Mike, that a shredder has a longer life expectancy than, like, say, a printer. Obviously, a shredder won't get used as much, but Like, realistically, it's just a similar kind of unit. Yeah, it's funny how that works. And sometimes it sort of seems a bit counterintuitive. For example, a timber bookcase has a 15-year effective life, whereas a metal one has a 20-year effective life. And sometimes it can feel a little bit weird to figure out how they come up with those figures. But often it's got to do with manufacturers' warranties. So, for example, if there's a ceiling fan that you could buy from a number of different providers, say different brands, but they all have a warranty of around about five years and none of them have a 10-year warranty, then that's one thing that the tax office will look at to say, okay, well, this object in their sort of parlance, they would say it reaches its functional obsolescence in about five years. So that's sort of how long we're using it. And they can get really, really specific on it as well. Like if you think about a pub, there's actually a different effective life for the carpet if it's in a drinking area of the pub or a dining area of the pub. This really kind of amuses me is that somewhere in the tax office, someone has said, well, the effective life in the drinking area should be less because drunk people will spill their wine and their beer on the carpet. <laughs> so we've got to make it less. Like, I just wish I could have been there for that conversation. <laughs> so, mate, back like, uh, you know, maybe 40 years ago or something when things were actually built to last, obviously the depreciation schedules must have, like the, how long they could actually last for must have been twice as long as they are now. It hasn't really changed that much. I mean, we've seen plant and equipment effective lives sort of slowly drop, but the structure itself hasn't really changed. It's always normally been either 4% for 25 years or 2.5% for 40 years. I mean, there are some weird assets that we did used to see, like strong room doors, like the big safe doors in banks. Some of those have 100-year effective lives, and they might last for 500 years or 10,000 years. Who knows, depending on what (laughs) sort of condition they're kept in. Recently, we saw some changes in the residential space. So carpet was 10 years. It's now dropped to eight. So there is sort of some recognition that assets are either being created and used harder or what might be a little bit more kind of capitalist or sinister is this sort of functional obsolescence, right? Like Apple's not going to make much money if they make an iPhone that lasts for 60 years. 
Yeah, that's right. Interesting. Very interesting that you spoke about strong room doors. As we know, a lot of banks are busy shrinking down and their historic properties, commercial properties, would have written maybe five-year, ten-year sort of leases are getting shorter and shorter. Mm. So in certain areas, you're finding that you can buy a commercial property that has a massive strong room in the property the fact that it's not being used as a bank anymore, that somebody's using it as a office or a restaurant or whatever, moving on, would there still be depreciation considering that that was structured for maybe 40 or 100 years? Are they still going to get depreciation on that by virtue of the fact that it exists, but they're not using it functionally as a strong roof? They could technically be. That's where it kind of gets a little bit of grey area. And, you know, this is where lawyers make their money, right? And I don't want the ATO to be calling me up based on my stance on strong room doors. But they would sort of say you'd have to be using the asset in a way that's kind of part of an ongoing business, right? So you could sort of argue that, all right, well, the strong room door is there, but I'm just kind of using it as a door. There's an argument to say, well, it's performing a function. It just kind of might be a little bit over-engineered, but there's no penalty for, say, over-capitalizing on your home renovation or your office fit-out, right? But it's not going to make you rich, right? Because the depreciation rate's really only going to be something like 2% or 1% in the prime cost method of depreciation. So you're only getting 2% of the strong room doors value each financial year. So I wouldn't be sort of hunting around for properties just by virtue of them having a lovely strong room door, although it is a lovely feature and talking point. Indeed. (laughs) For the listeners that don't know what a depreciation schedule is and when you should get one, Can you just explain exactly what it is, how it affects them, why they should get it, and in what point of the transaction of buying a commercial property or owning a commercial property, they should actually get one done? Yeah, great question, Andrew. I think, in essence, it's a report that shows your entitlement to claim depreciation deductions um, as the asset that you purchase kind of wears out, right? So it's available to any income-producing property. So obviously, a rental property is a clear one because you're running the business, offering a property for rent. They're paying you rental income. You've got expenses. And depreciation is really just like an on-paper expense, right? In a commercial premises, you might be renting out your building to a tenant. So that building is used in the sense of you're claiming deductions based on that being a business transaction. And it depends on the entity as well. So you might actually have two different entities operating in the same building. You might have your super fund owning the structure, and then you might have your business that's operating inside. So there's actually depreciation deductions available to both entities. So what we do is is when you purchase a property or you do a fit out, then that has a construction value. We either grab that value if the cost is known from you, or we estimate that value. That's really what quantity surveyors are qualified to do is estimate construction values. So we take that value, we apply all of the plant and equipment depreciation rates or the building structure rates, and essentially it just gives you a report showing the tax deductions you can claim each financial year. So if you have a depreciation schedule showing that you've got $50,000 worth of depreciation claims in a financial year and you made $200,000 of profit, then essentially in the eyes of the tax office, you're reducing that profit down to 150. So it's helping you to pay less tax. And as for when you should do it, I always sort of say, do it straight away, as soon as you're purchasing a property, or as soon as you've done some major works, because the fact remains is that you can only back claim two financial years worth of deductions, and people are still waiting too long, and we're seeing them each year come through to us that they're actually missing out on that claim. So yes, technically you could wait a year and a half to do it, but I think you're kind of just flirting with danger there. And you probably likely want to get those deductions up front because a dollar today is going to be worth more than a dollar tomorrow, especially in the current inflationary environment, right? (laughs) That's right. So it can be a huge chunk of cash that you're basically writing off against your actual income. And so after you've got that first schedule done, you don't need to get it done at all again until when, Mike? You really shouldn't need to get it done at all. The one sort of asterisk or caveat to that is that if the building fundamentally changes, so let's say you buy a warehouse and we do a depreciation schedule and then five years later the tenant says the air conditioner 
has failed and you have to put in, let's say, a brand new split system, you don't need to get a quantity surveyor to come and do another depreciation schedule because you'll know the value of that split system and you'll know the date that it's installed and you can either give that to your accountant who can look up the depreciation rate or if it's one or two items, you can give it to us and we'll update the report free of charge. The one time where that is different is let's say you are extending the property or you are making some major renovations and the cost breakdown isn't known. And what I mean by that is that you might pay, say, $200,000 for a fit out, but it's not necessarily going to tell you the value of the fire detection alarms and the fire extinguishers and the lighting systems and the carpet and the floating timber floor. That's where we can come in and estimate that breakdown. Now, when you're doing, say, a fit out and you're spending a fixed amount, we can't claim more than actually what you've spent. But by breaking down those plant and equipment items, we can hunt down those higher rates of depreciation. So rather than having to wait 40 years to get your deductions back, we can grab those plant and equipment items that have a much higher rate of depreciation and get those deductions more upfront. So that would be the only time that I would recommend getting another report as if the building is fundamentally changed and there's not a clear breakdown of those individual costs. Let's just say a shopping centre, for instance, a small shopping centre, and you're replacing two or three of the air conditioners with new tenants coming in, let's say, every two years or so, and doing fit-outs in those particular shops. You'd be advising that we'd be doing depreciation schedules as that happens or uh, just before the financial year? Personally, I would be wanting to see the scope of works and the cost information around those fit outs. So if there is a very clear breakdown, then you might not necessarily need to get a quantity surveyor involved. But when you get a fit out company, they might break it down into particular trades, but they very rarely break it down into tax office, plant and equipment Mm. categories, right? So, for example, there's a big company in Sydney that really does a complete gutting or renovation of their floor plates every couple of years. They get us involved to do an even more detailed depreciation schedule and asset register where we're looking at the individual assets and reporting to them to say this is exactly what we estimate of the total, say, $2.5 million fit out. We'll come in and we'll say there's $275,000 worth of carpet, for example. So, mate, if you could actually formulate your own plan, like to buy an asset or develop an asset to best take advantage of this tax write-off, how would you do it? I can't answer this one, Andrew, without first saying that I wouldn't do it. And I keep talking about residential, and this is not a resi podcast, but people ask me all the time, you know, what sort of property should I buy for the best depreciation deductions? Now, these typically aren't sophisticated commercial investors. They might be mum and dad Uh, residential investors. And then when I go and explain the type of property to buy to get the maximum deductions, their face kind of looks like they've sucked on a lemon. And as I described to them, the worst possible investment they could have, you know, would be a unit in an apartment complex of say 500 with four gyms and 18 levels of car parking (laughs) and a cinema, right? The strata fees alone would just put hair on your hairs. So the fact that properties can have great depreciation deductions shouldn't necessarily be the driving force for an investment itself. They should just be a bonus, right? So if you were to present to me two properties side by side and you've done all the due diligence and all the clever stuff that you and Mish do that I don't understand, and one of them was a brand new warehouse, whereas other one was, a let's say, a brand new nursing home, I would say the nursing home because it's going to have a higher construction cost per square meter. So the more money spent on construction, the more deductions you're going to get. And there's going to be more plant and equipment items. So you might be owning all of the emergency warning and nurse intercom systems, where if you think about a warehouse, it's mostly open space. So the cost per square meter is quite low because there's just kind of a big chunk of air with just a roof and a floor. And there might not even be, say, a mezzanine level with an office. So Anything that has a higher cost per square meter to build or a more detailed amount of items and widgets inside it. So say, for example, again, I'll pick on a a warehouse or you might say a storage facility versus a pub. A pub's going to be more expensive to build per square meter and there's going to be more stuff in it. That's where the depreciation deductions tend to be higher. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, mate, uh, great answer there. I totally agree with that. Uh, you know, you shouldn't be even factoring in the deductions that you can get into your numbers. If that's the deciding factor to buy the property or not, then you're on the wrong property. That should just yeah. be the icing yeah. on top. It's quite amazing because some people add a property and they include the depreciation numbers into their feasibility. I always say to them, mate, take that out. Seriously, what you're getting in depreciation, as you so rightly said, that's the cherry on top of the icing. Just put that in your back pocket and be happy with it. But value your acquisition by virtue of the fact that it is maybe a 6 or 7% yielding property, whatever it is. Exactly. And what good is depreciation if in four or five years you have to sell it because of vacancies yeah. or the yield is half what you thought it was going to be? You can go, oh, yay, well, my accountant always says that there's very exciting numbers on the depreciation side of things, but that's not going to help you in the long run. Whoopie-doo, that's not going to help you when you're selling the property either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm a depreciation guy. You know, I love it and I want to help people. But when they say, you know, what should I buy for the best deductions? Like I sort of have to take them to school a little bit, but we all laugh and cry in the end and hug and we're okay. <laughs> like, what's the highest amount that you've written off in depreciation? That's a good question. I'd have to sort of really think about I, that. I, I guess it would be one of those hospitals or nursing homes or something where you've got a lot of moving parts and a super huge one. I mean, I'm here on the Gold Coast on holidays at the moment, and we did reports for the Marriott and the Hilton hotels, and they were obviously huge deductions. So we're talking in excess of a million dollars worth of deductions in the first year. So I would probably be thinking somewhere around about two or three million dollars worth of deductions in the first year of claim. So that's 365 days worth of deductions over two million dollars. That's probably about where I'd see. I personally haven't done anything in the billions of dollars from a total value as yet. But, uh, you know, I'm not retired yet. So he's hoping. <laughs> You've got plenty of time to get there. Yeah. <laughs> if you're playing with the big stuff with the Marriott and that sort. Mm. When we talk about inflation versus tax depreciation schedules, how does inflation affect our depreciation? What it does is it increases construction costs moving forward, right? Now, construction costs and inflation are not perfectly linked. I mean, construction costs historically have outpaced inflation by a small margin and in the last little while by a huge margin. Huge margin. Um, yeah, so certain materials have increased by 70% in six to 12 months, right? We're talking about a 12-month sort of across the board increase in construction costs by 20% or more. And you can see that that's really sort of being evidenced by some of the high profile companies that are in negotiation talks or have gone bankrupt, right? What a lot of people forget is that the beginning of the pandemic, no one really knew exactly what was going to happen. There was a good few months where we kind of thought the world might end. We forgot that fairly quickly because everything went up in price. Anyone that owned property made a billion dollars. But a lot of builders really went in at low margins to secure a stream of work. Now, then when construction costs and material costs rose, labor rose, uh, they were locked into these fixed price contracts. So what they kind of saw as battening down the hatches and securing the work became a real nightmare for them. And it's still actually being borne out. And I think costs will go down. But when it comes to depreciation deductions, our job is to really just estimate accurate costs to construct a property as at the time that it's being done. So if you bought a property let's say three years ago before construction costs went crazy, it doesn't really impact your depreciation schedule because we estimated the cost to build as at the time that it was built. And that's the way that you need to do it. If you're buying something today that was built in 1995, what we actually do is we estimate the cost to build today. And then we calculate what the historical cost would be from building price indices, which are given to us by various bodies like the Australian Institute of Quantity Surveyors or the Department of Commerce. So People don't need to worry about it from a depreciation point too much, other than the fact that if you're buying a property now, we will be factoring that in our cost. But one thing that a lot of commercial property owners don't necessarily appreciate is that the huge increase in construction costs has led to a real problem with underinsurance. So full disclosure, it is a service that we provide where we're estimating replacement costs for insurance purposes. It is a really, really big problem in Australia. The Insurance Council of Australia has said in the past that 
83% of people are underinsured because they don't understand construction costs. Now, that number is going to be way higher than that, and we can see Mother Nature's getting angrier and angrier. That is a real problem. So if your property was adequately insured for replacement two years ago and you haven't made any change, then almost certainly you're underinsured now. Yeah, that's really interesting, Mike, because we're going to be um, developing some self-storage very, very soon. And we definitely might need to give you a call and get you to help us with the insurance on the existing self-storage. Yeah, for sure. We started working on this a couple of years ago, and it has become a real mission of ours, a real passion project. We've got to the point where we've worked on our internal systems so that we can provide a flat fee service, which is $660 for any commercial property, residential or commercial, under $10 million in value. Over that, it's a case by case. We didn't want, say, the Opera House to be sent to us for a $600 fee. That would make us go bankrupt, right? (laughs) So that's not a service that we're making much margin on, but we just believe in it and we want to make sure that people are covered with insurance. Yeah, awesome. So, mate, silly question. If you had to choose one plant and equipment item Which would you say was your favorite and why? I brought this up at the Accounting Business Expo earlier this year. There was a change two years ago to residential effective lives where they included digital peepholes for the first time ever. Now, that's kind of my favorite because it just sounds creepy. I mean, essentially what it is is like an intercom for a door, right? Like you can see who's behind the door, but they called it a peephole. I don't know, like anytime I hear the word peephole, it's got that peeping Tom connotation. Yeah, yeah. And because, I don't know, I'm immature. I think that's funny. So it's my favorite. <laughs> I love it. Other than that, I don't think they're in there anymore, but there used to be a plant and equipment category for stuffed crocodiles and lion cages. That's just evidence right. of how weirdly specific things have been. I don't think I've actually ever seen a stuffed crocodile. Like the day that I get to put that in a depreciation schedule, <laughs> I would just be over the moon, but it hasn't happened yet. We're going to have to send you up to the northern part of the country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wanted to start putting it on our social media channels, you know, plant and equipment item of the week. But I think I got sort of, I got encouraged that that is pretty nerdy and uninteresting to everyone that isn't me. I hope you're enjoying the show. We'll be right back after this short break. Are you struggling to put together a wealth plan? Revolve Commercial have designed an eight-question process that generates a personalized 12-month wealth growth plan. And it's free. i got to check this out myself. Go to www.revolvecommercial.com.au to get your personalized wealth growth plan free today. So, mate, we've touched on it before, but apart from the three main sectors, office, retail, and industrial, what are the next best types of assets for depreciation? I think Andrew wants you to say storage. Oh, storage. (laughs) You can't go past storage. I mean, storage has been super popular. I know the fund managers have been snapping up self-storage like nobody's business. And let's be honest, like depreciation is less important than kind of the ongoing demand for it. If there's one thing we love, it's stuff. And we've not got anywhere to put it, right? So self-storage is going to be recession-proof. The reality with self-storage from a depreciation point of view is, unfortunately, there's not that much in it. The typical places you've got, uh, let's say, a code pad and you've got an automatic sliding gate. You've got a bunch of big sheds with a couple of lights, maybe some fire extinguishers and hose reels and some security, but there's not that much, right? But that's not why Andrew's excited in it. It's not because of depreciation. But things like pubs, cafes, restaurants, those are big ones for depreciation. Pubs, I remember back in the day, your average sort of aspiring investor could buy a pub. Now they're hundreds of millions of dollars just for rundown crappy old ones, I think, because that Hems bloke is just going to town or whoever it is. They're a good one because the cost per square meter is quite high and they're just full of plant and equipment items. So, for example, you've got, you know, your beer dispensing system assets, the coffee machines, you've even got dance floor assets. That's an actual category under restaurants and takeaway food services and those sorts of things. Fog machines and strobe lights and disco balls. 
and then just all of the things like cutlery, crockery and glassware, the furniture and menu boards, those are interesting ones. But yeah, going back to my previous point, if it costs a fair bit to build the thing and it's full of stuff, I know this is not technical. I don't think this is going to be cited in any university lecture. If it's expensive to build and full of stuff, then it's good for depreciation. And if you think, for example, self-storage, it's not that expensive to build and it's empty of stuff. You want it to be filled up with other people's stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. It yeah, is yeah. full of stuff, just not ours. Yeah, and you can't claim the deductions and neither can the people that own it unless it's part of an income-producing purpose. So let's yeah. say it's... Uh, Andrew and Misha's wild kayak tours and it's full of kayaks when they're not in use. I mean, then that would be depreciable plant and equipment items. That would be a hell of a business. Wouldn't it? What? Oh, sign me up. (laughs) Seeing that we're on the topic of storage, what would you recommend for self-storage? Which method? I think it all comes down to the accountant, right? They're going to be the best person to say, are the deductions more beneficial for you straight away? or over the long term. So again, it gets back to that point, when are you likely to make the profit? And it depends, like if you're developing it to retain, it's a little bit different because you don't necessarily want to claim anything if you're selling it to another party, because then you can be you can be writing down some of the value for that second owner. But mm. personally, to me, I always think that the diminishing value method is better, unless there's a particular reason that your accountant is saying that the deductions are better in the longer term, because I just always go back to that point of a a dollar is never going to be more valuable than it is today. That's a very, very interesting outlook on it. And as you're talking about it, I'm thinking about it. And as you know, Mike, I love uplift properties. I do uplift properties all the time. So we would take properties, we would purchase properties around about two, three million dollars, do works on them and then do that uplift and have them reevaluated about a year or two later for an additional two, maybe three additional million to two million on top of it. So from that perspective, if we are adding value to the property, realistically, we probably should be looking at straight line depreciation. Yeah, it depends. Like in that sort of situation where you're revaluing and you're not necessarily selling the property, then you're not necessarily having to offset any particular capital gains. But it also depends on what that particular entity might be doing elsewhere. You might be disposing of an asset elsewhere and that company or whatever the structure might be might actually benefit from a loss being in that financial year. But yeah, it all comes down to having a team of experts. I mean, we're the experts in estimating the construction costs and finding all of these plant and equipment items so we can get you higher rates of depreciation. But the accountant would be best to speak to about when those deductions are of most value to you. What are some big mistakes that you see people making when they buy new from a developer? I think there are certain issues with buying from a developer if there's, say, a tenant in place. So that could be mostly in the residential space where there's a provision within the legislation to allow the new owner to buy from a developer with a tenant in place and still be able to claim the plant and equipment items, but there's only a six-month window. So if there's a tenant in there for more than six months and the developer's selling it, then the purchaser won't be able to claim those deductions. The other one that I see across residential and commercial that's a real key one is that often a developer will sell a brand new property and they'll provide a watered down depreciation schedule. Now that might say that the cost to build your strata warehouse unit is X and there's a plant and equipment item of a hot water system and a let's say an automatic roller door of X dollars. But those dollars aren't necessarily a total installed cost. That might be a, a trade discount value that they get. That might be the cost price of the asset. So anytime that you're given depreciable values, it's important to have a quantity surveyor look at that or to at least understand how that cost was provided because a quantity surveyor can claim those depreciation deductions based on the total installed cost of an asset. And what I mean by that is that you might buy a strata warehouse unit with a $750 hot water system, but that could be the discounted cost that that developer got because they bought a thousand of them. And it's unlikely to be an actual cost to install the asset included. So what we're talking about is how much would it cost to put a hot water system 
in that property fully installed by a qualified electrician or tradesperson. So that's an important thing to consider if you're ever given any costs from a developer. That is gold. That little bit of information I think is really, really important that a lot of people slip up on. I mean, a depreciation schedule, I've heard it be called an asset register before. Can you just tell us the difference between a depreciation schedule and and an asset register? Yeah, an asset register is way more expensive. (laughs) (laughs) And that's really the first thing I tell people when they call up saying, I want to get an asset register. I say, do you really? Because I don't think you want to pay for it and we don't really want to do it. Because in all honesty, it's such a big exercise that we want to make sure that someone actually needs it before we go ahead with it. An asset register, the best way to sort of think about it is let's say we're talking about a restaurant. A depreciation schedule would have one line item called cooking appliances. And there might be six or seven cooking appliances, but it's just one big bucket with one big total depreciating each year. An asset register would have a grill, an oven, a hot plate, a cooktop. They would be broken down into the individual assets. So that's the key difference for an asset register. Now, why would you want to get a breakdown of that? Well, if you are swapping assets in and out on a regular basis, then you would want to know what the individual assets values are, right? Because otherwise... How do you know what to stop claiming if you're throwing an item in the bin? So we do a lot of asset registers for companies like Guzman and Gomez or McDonald's because those assets get replaced fairly often. They add new ones and they take new ones out. So that's why an asset register is valuable in that instance. But most commercial property owners aren't going to necessarily get any benefit in splitting those assets up. It doesn't give you a higher rate of depreciation because we're calculating them as six or seven assets anyway. And if there's a, say, a a low value pooling threshold of $1,000 and there's $6,000 worth of assets, but there's seven assets, individually, they're still going to be under $1,000 anyway. But that's the main difference between them is that the asset register will catalog individual assets like individual shares, for example, whereas normally it would just be under a category of furniture, for example. When you said McDonald's, that got my mind racing on how many deductions they would have for a fit out of that kind of kitchen. It must be ridiculous. Yeah, it's up there. It depends how recently the McDonald's has been built or updated. Gosh, we've done maybe 40 or 50 of them, heaps and heaps of them around Queensland and northern New South Wales. And when we get the asset register from the proprietor, so normally these are privately owned rather than company-owned stores, they normally have about 30 to 33 individually identified asset. Then we go and do our inspection. It comes closer to around about 180, 185 assets that we break it down to. So you would kind of think that a sophisticated company like McDonald's would be nailing all of that from a tax point of view and that they would also be getting things cheap, right? Like let's say, for example, I'm calling up Andrew and Mish's Refrigeration Proprietary Limited because the kayak business was so successful you sold it. (laughs) You know, I want to buy 2,000 fridges for the McDonald's network. You would go, wow, okay, well, we're going to do you a deal. But there's actually McDonald's tax. The franchisees are are so often saying that they just get stung by people. It's kind of like, you know, when you're going and buying a cake. Is it for a wedding or is it for a celebration? One's twice the price. Yeah, Yeah, wow. Absolutely. So, Mike, how much money do you think is being left on the table by people not getting that depreciation schedule? I mean, I'd have to be probably in the safe hands of a counsellor or psychologist to really start crunching at Mish because I'd be in tears by the end. We did some analysis on residential investors and we found that 6.7% of people that come to us wait so long that they miss out on deductions and the average amount that they miss out on is 20,537. Now, if you extrapolate that across the residential investor population, that's $2.88 billion worth of deductions floating in the ether. That's a big amount and that buys probably at least six dodgy French submarines. If you think about (laughs) commercial though... It's really weird for me 
when we talk about commercial depreciation, I think commercial property investors are less educated than residential on tax depreciation. I hate to say it, but here's normally what happens. The smaller commercial property investors either don't know about it because there's been less available information for commercial property investors traditionally than there has been residential, right? Like we used to have three property investor magazines that were almost exclusively talking about residential. There's so many more residential podcasts and books, and it's really only in the last little while that commercial has seen some great podcasts like this one pop up and Andrew's been out and about with his profile sort of sharing commercial property investing and you know guys like Steve Felici and Scott O'Neill with books and a profile so I think a lot of people don't know about it and then what actually happens is it gets to a point where this is a big enough business where they actually have a financial controller or a chief financial officer, these guys tend not to understand or see value in hiring a commercial tax depreciation specialist. And they will just do things like a developer does when they're giving you figures. They might just say, okay, we've bought this asset and the value is said, the construction value is X, so we'll just put 2.5% on it. I mean, that stuff happens all the time. So I actually think that in the commercial space, there's more deductions that are that are left on the table than there are in the residential sector. Mm, I would agree with you. And I think if people are not aware of it, they don't think about it. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And despite me sort of droning on about it for the last 15 years, Personally, I don't talk much about commercial property, right? If I'm presenting at the Accounting Business Expo, I might talk a little bit about commercial because there will be some commercial investors, but it's mostly investors investing in residential property. There's more residential property. There's more residential transactions. There's just, there is a bit of a gap in the education Mm -hmm. that's available out there. And that's why I think it's so important for guys like yourself, Andrew and Mish, to be sharing the information and I guess letting people see behind the veil and, and helping them to get the results that they can through understanding all of this. Yeah, well, hopefully that gap is closing because we most certainly are drumming your bell as we possibly can. Excellent. (laughs) I mean, we see the value in depreciation values and we entice all of our clients the minute that property settles to uh, jump in and get those depreciations done. Yeah, and look, I appreciate that and I love working with guys like yourselves, but I mean, it doesn't have to be me, right? And the product is important. So sometimes it's It's kind of hard for me because I'm a guy that grew up in country New South Wales. I don't really have a sales bone in my body. I just sort of like to do right by people and I hope that the world will kind of recognize me for it and and the universe will look after me in some ways. But sometimes it's kind of hard because we're talking about, say, your average commercial property on the smaller side of things. It might be putting, say, $30,000 worth of deductions in your pocket a year. And we're saying, look, it's going to cost you $1,900 for the report or let's say $3,000 for the report. And they're kind of like, all right, well, would I pay $3,000 to get 10x back in my pocket? Yeah, but that sounds a bit fishy. Like it's a bit too good to be true. There must be something dodgy about it. (laughs) Well, I think you've nailed that because I wanted to ask you on average, what would it cost and, and, uh, you know, what could they get back? And we've spoken about this a couple of times where, as you say, it's just 10x's. Yeah, I mean, like with the residential space, we normally like to see double our fee worth of deductions. So our standard residential fee is $650 and commercial are all case by case and they normally start at seven or $800 and going up into tens of thousands of dollars if you're wanting an asset register on a hotel, for example. But the returns are normally much better for commercial property. I mean, we can't claim a percentage of the deductions. I mean, that would be amazing if we could. But we did a report for under $2,000 on a $40 million car park once. Now, that was a really low fee, so much so that the owner rang me up and said, I don't know what I'm talking about. All the other quotes were ten grand, And I had to say, all right, well, let's just really think about it. A lot of maybe some of these quantities of ours have seen you've paid $40 million, so you can probably afford 10 grand. But I want to quote based on the work involved. Now, this had a, an actual business car park. And I said, do you own the ticketing machines and the boom gates? They said, oh, no, that's another company that owns all of that equipment. And basically, we found out that they own concrete. 
some lights and some white lines. A tiny bit more to it than that. <laughs> but it was a simple report for us, right? And the deductions in that were just astronomical. Even though it was a car park, I mean, it was a $40 million purchase. We were, from memory, we're talking, you know, 5 or $10 million of construction value. So that was a pretty good one, right? And so, Mikey, the, um, the depreciation schedule, that's a tax write-off as well, though, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So you can claim it as a deduction in the year that you pay for the fee. So depending on your marginal rate of tax as an individual or a company or a trust or an SMSF will depend on what it actually will cost you after tax. But yes, it is deductible. So it's definitely a win-win. I mean, you're not going too far out of pocket to get it straight back to next year. Like I mentioned before, double our fee for a residential place is, is about where we start saying, yes, this is beneficial. We want the report to be putting more back in the investor's pocket than it costs in the first year. And it's a 40-year report. And if it doesn't, we will say, look, this is where we think the deductions would be. Go and chat to your accountant and say, should I pay X to get Y? And the accountant might say, well, there's two years of back claim, so there's value in that. Or they might say, well, yeah, you're going to rent it out for the next 20 years, so it'll pay for itself for three, and then the rest is a bonus, right? So, yeah, commercial's just even better. The cost for a report proportionally to the deductions is so much less in commercial property normally. We did a report on a huge warehouse for, I think, somewhere in the $3,500 mark that I remember getting around about a million dollars back worth of deductions in the first year. I mean, that's a huge difference between the cost and the actual benefit to the end user. Yeah, that's it. A lot of people, what they don't realize is, yes, and they just look at money out of pocket today, but what they don't really realize is that huge saving because when their when their tax comes back at the end of the year, that depreciation report has saved them that huge chunk of money, but they don't see it. Mm, it's, they don't hear it, they don't see it. Some people are motivated by the stick and others the carrot mesh. And there's a lot of people that fear the stick and they can't see the carrot. And I think yeah. like I mean, it's probably a out of date metaphor because who's eating carrots these days? But I think they were talking about a horse or something, right? But you're right. It needs to be factored in and you've got to find the money out of your pocket somewhere. But you should be able to have an upfront and honest conversation with your quantity surveyor to say, look, what is your rough estimate of the deductions that I can get? We normally will do that for free for people. Sometimes with commercial, it's hard because it's very difficult to explain something over the phone and often there's less photos available than there is in the residential space but we can still get a fairly good idea that is it going to be ten thousand dollars in the first year worth of deductions or a hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars it's not that hard to have an open upfront idea and conversation is it actually worth me doing this or not and I think the big thing for the big takeaway for people to remember is when they're sitting with a tax consultant, accountant, whoever it is, ask the question. Mm. You know, ask how much can we actually see the depreciation there? Because you know, if you've gone forked out ten thousand dollars on a depreciation report and you're looking at a million bucks in reductions, happy days. Look at it, see it, feel good about it, know that you've mm. just text your your numbers. Yeah, if it was up to me, I would have everyone report back to me on what it put in their pocket. You know, it's very rare that that happens. But I've had people before say, I asked my accountant what that actually meant for me. And we paid $600 and we got $3,700 back in our pocket just because of your schedule. Happy days. It's a good feeling, isn't it? I really enjoy it. You know, like it makes me happy. And a lot of people sort of talked to me about it before and kind of said, oh, you know, but you're avoiding tax and everyone has an obligation to pay tax. And I just kind of think, well, you know, this legislation is not new, right? And these are your entitlements. And if you have any sort of scruples about paying your way to society, then don't give it to the government, for heaven's sake. You know, give it to your favourite charity, right? Like I mentioned dodgy French submarines. I'm sure we're going to get like UK or US ones, but would you rather give money to a government that's going to buy nuclear submarines or to your charity that's looking after animals or people or the environment or whatever? No, absolutely. <laughs> I think it's definitely worth asking the question, enjoying the depreciation and getting that right off. Mm. Give it where you can. 
Well, uh, now seems like uh, as good a time as any to move this party on to the next segment of the show, which is the fire round. Welcome to the fire round. So, Mikey, in this segment, we ask the same four questions to each guest each episode. So, Mish, do you want to kick it off? Oh, I love this section. Absolutely. One of my best. So, Mike, if you could read only one business book in your life, what book would that be and why? I think it's probably one of the originals that I read, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. That yes. book is very, very old. There's nothing kind of crazy about it, but it's just got so many fundamentals on customer service. I just think it's a treasure. Excellent, excellent choice. So, mate, if you had $1 million deposit right now and you had to invest it tomorrow or you'd lose it to the tax man, where would you invest it and what would you invest it in? Tell me about these storage centres. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer, Mike. Fantastic answer. <laughs> I think if I had $200,000 or maybe, let's say, $80,000, I'd be looking more residential. But a million dollars, like it's really hard to beat the returns for commercial property these days. And even though the depreciation deductions might not be as good as a pub, storage centres, you had me at storage centres. <laughs> I'll send you an expression of interest after the score. No problem. Good, good on you, Mish. So, Mike, if you were to lose all your net wealth, if you had to start all over again, what would your first move be? You've got nothing. What would you start all over with? How would you start again? I think I'd cry in the bath. And then I'd quite possibly do a lessons learned and figure out how the hell I cocked everything up to begin with. <laughs> from there I would be investing in education I think like if I didn't feel like I had the mouse and the experience I'd be educating myself on the options because uh, I just think that that's so valuable for people that are in the process of beginning their career but honestly I think I'd probably I'd probably do everything that I've done in the past again and just cancel out all of the mistakes and wrong turns that I took <laughs> Well, it's an excellent uh, answer there, mate, because uh, investing in your own education is something that you can never lose. You know, so yeah. no one can take that away from you. Great answer. So, mate, apart from uh, creating uh, mind-blowing tax depreciation schedules, what are some <laughs> of your favorite hobbies? <laughs> Blowing minds. Blowing minds <laughs> and, and breaking hearts. Um, I, I, uh, I'm a retired triathlete, so I really did enjoy swim, biking and running. And these days, anytime I get a chance to do that, I enjoy that. I'm into cars. I've got a sports car, so I like to do those sort of cars and coffee style events. And I'm getting my pilot's license at the moment. So that's probably hobby number one. I'm having a great time doing that. Fixed wing or a chopper? Fixed wing. Choppers are so bloody expensive. I don't know what it is. But it's almost twice the price to rent a helicopter and to learn to fly in a helicopter. So maybe one day, because I love the idea about just setting it down wherever you like. But I wanted to be a fighter pilot when I was a youngster. So it's a fixed wing for me to begin with. Cool, cool. And I saw you're doing a big bike race very soon. You want to have a quick chat about that? Yeah, I'm raising money for a charity called Feel the Magic a charity that helps people between the ages of normally seven and 17 that have lost a parent or both parents or a sibling. They're camps that help people with their grief and overcoming the loss. So a buyer's agent by the name of Jay Anderson invited me along to that at about 10.30 at a cocktail bar in Terrigal. And I said, yes. And <laughs> since then, I've had a hip injury and COVID and done no training. And it's about to kick off in about two weeks That'll be uh, 500 Ks in four days with 5,000 meters of climbing and a hell of a lot of crying in the bath, I assume. Oh, wow. Well, good on you. It is. And where can people go to donate, Mike? You can go to feelthemagic.com.au, I believe. I really should have had my link up here. Oh, here we go. I'll put it in the show notes for you. Let's do that. I will paste that to you. And yeah, I'd love anyone to get involved in that because I think that's just a fantastic charity. Is that starting before the 15th of next month? You say it's in two weeks? The 15th or the 16th is the first day of the ride, but that page will be up there all that time and afterwards as well. Okay, because this podcast doesn't come out to the 15th of next month, so it might be pretty tight, but we'll still do it anyway. It'll still be there. 
Yeah. <laughs> and for a damn good cause, so I think it's great. You'll be listening and I'll be possibly on the bike right now in all sorts. <laughs> well, you can listen to it while you're riding, Mike. Yeah, yeah probably not. off it. Listen back to your own voice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can hear it over my own tears. <laughs> all right, mate. So you prepared a free giveaway for the listener as well. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, look, we want to be able to provide a free estimate for anyone that's in the commercial space. So if you've got a commercial property that either you have purchased or you're looking at purchasing, we want to be able to provide you with a free estimate of that. And if you mention the podcast, we'll hook you up with a reduced fee as well. Awesome. I believe you also have a checklist as well for the listeners. Yeah, we've got a tax time checklist that we're sharing. Thanks for prompting me on that one, Andrew, (laughs) head of marketing for MCG Quantity Surveyors. Yes, a tax time checklist that's going to help you to understand all of the little uh, bits and bobs you need to get together to have a successful meeting with your accountant this financial year and have a good tax return to invest in my charitable works. Awesome. And if you want to go download that, you can get that free checklist from revolvecommercial.com.au forward slash TDC. That's short for tax depreciation checklist. Or I'll also put that link in the show notes. So Mikey, last question, mate. Where can listeners go to find out more about you and your company? Yeah, you can go to mcgqs.com.au. That's our website. So MCG like the cricket ground and then QS for quantity surveyors. You can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn and everywhere except TikTok. But Come uh, on. who knows? Who knows? <laughs> I reckon you'd actually be good at TikTok. Maybe the, I'll have the, a bash. The, the dancing tax depreciation man. Oh, huh? nobody needs that. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's going to be the cycling tax depreciation man. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, today's guest has been Mike Mortlock. Cheers, Mikey. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks, guys. All right. This has been Mish Daniel and Andrew Bean on the Revolve Commercial Podcast. Where wealth revolves around you. Thanks for listening to the Revolve Commercial Podcast. Don't forget to check out their private Facebook group, Cashflow on Autopilot with Revolve Commercial. This show has been produced by the Commercial Property Show Network.